the best-selling compliance handbook by compliance evangelist and compliance podcast network founder tom fox has been updated revised and improved in its new second edition this new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Jonathan Marks. Jonathan's a partner at Baker Tilly, a longtime uh, professional in internal audit and a wide variety of other functions, including the compliance space. I've known Jonathan. He was one of the first people I met on social media, and we've continued our friendship and collaboration since then. So, Jonathan, first of all, with an incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be here. So, Jonathan, as you know, uh, I've got um, uh, second edition of my compliance handbook coming out. And one of the areas that I hit very hard in the first edition was investigations. And what I realized in re in writing the second edition is really that term investigation, I think, is no longer sufficient to describe not only the type of work you do, but what a compliance professional needs from the discipline in your end. So I was wondering if you might be able to start with the evolution you've seen in your own profession, literally since Sarbanes-Oxley, but maybe even from before that time. Yeah, I think there really has been an evolution, and you know what I've seen from from a from from what we're doing today as compared to what we were doing, you know, let's say you know 15 or 20 years ago. I mean, if you go back, if you go back 30 years ago and you start with internal audit and what they were doing, they were sort of they were a necessary evil. And they really weren't part of, you know, the overall, let's just say, risk management of the organization. And, you know, their role has really taken an expansive, an expansive step upwards. And, you know, now today, you know, with regards to what skills are needed and the types of people and the types of things that they're involved with and their importance within the, the ecosystem of the organization and actually looking and helping with the, the risk landscape, it, it's, it's remarkable, you know, where they where everybody started from and where they are. So for example, you know, skill sets, um, you know, today you really have to be, I, I call it digitally athletic, meaning that you have to understand data analytics. You have to understand the sources of data. You have to understand, you know, how to mine that data, you know, how it's useful, the sources of truth, you know, um, what type of feedback, could, you know, does that data tell us, you know, is that is that data being pushed back into, the company in order to make more informed decisions, you know, can we use it for continuous monitoring of the business, you know, so it, it's, it's really changed there from a, a total skill set perspective. But, you know, we're, when I, when I look at people today and I look at, and, and I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, um, you know, a while back, you know, I could think of with, you know, technology really didn't come into play all that much. You know, I had my compact luggable, you know, communication, you really didn't communicate to many people. Um, and, you know, when it, when it came to critical thinking, there really wasn't too much critical thinking. But I think those are the three skills that have really come into play today, you know, when it comes to sort of this transformation from, you know, where we came, you know, since Sarbanes-Oxley and where we are now. Jonathan, one of the most interesting observations I've heard you make, second only to your definition of an internal control, is that you see the internal control provisions of Sarbanes-Oxley 
coming out of the FCPA internal control requirements under the books and records. I was wondering if you could just kind of explain that a little bit. Yeah, so um, let's, let's a little bit. Uh, so the FCPA by itself places, you know, responsibility for controls on the corporation in general, right? And then Sarbanes-Oxley specifically charges executive officers with internal control duties. Okay, um, you know, I think, you know, more specifically, the FCPA required public companies to institute effective internal controls to stop bribes. And, and actually, you know, one of the things that I keep talking about is accountability, making those executives accountable um, under the FCPA. But 404 goes a little bit further than that and has somewhat similar goals, um, you know, uh, you know, but the FCPA language around internal controls is, is somewhat interesting if you've ever read it, and I know you have, but, you know, devising and maintaining a system of internal control sufficient to provide, you know, certain assurances. Again, it's all the concept of reasonable assurance, not absolute assurance, but it talks about transactions recorded in the books and records. It talks about a bunch of different things, which I think is, is kind of interesting. And I think those were foundationally the substance of what Sarbanes-Oxley was all about. Um, you know, before, you know, before all of this and before, actually even before, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, there was Fiducia 112 for financial institutions, which again, you know, some say was the forerunner, you know, to, to Sarbanes-Oxley. So if you take the FCPA and what the regulators have been doing all along, and the reason I, I always go back to financial services, because they seem to be the industry because they're so, they're so transactionally based um, and the risk is all on the transactions where, you know, we look towards, you know, the regulators and the things that they're doing in order to see, you know, directionally where they're headed and what they're doing. But so if I had a look at this, you know, you had, you know, had the FCPA in 77, you had Fiducia 112 that came out, you know, years later. And then in 2002, you had the, you know, the enactment of Sarbanes-Oxley. So, you know, that's why I think, and, and honestly, you and I have talked about this a lot, um, I, I remember specific conversations where we talked about the Swith, the was it the Smith and Wesson case, you know, and the enforce the enforcement action. I think that was what in 2014, 15, you know, where the Security Exchange and and you know the SEC since that has more aggressively pursued companies for violations of internal controls, you know, under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So you know, again, you know, I, I think there's an expectation here. It's sort of it was sort of this shot across the bow where they said, hey, you know, look, you know, your books and records need to be neat and tidy, but you need to pay you know, close attention to internal controls. And, um, you know, since since the Smith & Wesson case, I know that we could sit here and talk ad nauseum about other cases where, you know, companies have been dinged for their, you know, for internal controls or the failure to, you know, adequately maintain, you know, internal controls under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Jonathan, hopefully I wrote this down right, but you, I think, listed three key uh, items of evolution in the internal audit profession as digitally athletic communications and critical thinking. If I got that right, is that what you see in the arc of evolution in the compliance profession, and is it, or is it still an evolving profession from your perspective? Um, I think it's evolving. I think some of those same attributes, obviously, you know, fall into the compliance profession. Um, you know, again, if you, you know, if you look at where the regulators are headed with all of this, 
and I, I'm sure we'll get there in our discussion today. It just feels like it's headed in that direction. But if you talk about the enterprise risk resilient ecosystem, or you talk about business intelligence or things of that nature, you know, you really have to have people that are not only digitally athletic, uh, uh, yeah, digitally athletic and understand technology, but you really need folks that are great communicators that can reach out and across and through silos and get that information or communicate that information. I think that's really, really important. You know, I remember one of the things when I first when I first started in auditing way back when in the 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 late 80s, um, you know, they said technically, you know, you have to be obviously sound, but they said the, the most successful auditors are the ones that you know, can communicate and build trust and relationships with people because they tend to pull more information out of them. Um, you know, and obviously that goes into interviewing and all kinds of other skills and, and things like that. But um, I, I, I honestly go back to that every single time is that, you know, the human in the loop or the, or the, or the human factor is just so critical today and probably even more so. And so, I, you know, when, when we start talking about sort of the evolution or the arc of compliance and of those same types of skills and capabilities, um, you know, things that we're looking for, you know, you know, in the compliance profession. I think absolutely. I think no longer can you have that legal mindset, which you you need, right? If you look at a lot of the chief compliance officers, they have a legal background. But I also think you need to understand, you know, not only the technology and the communication piece, but you know, if you were looking to if you're looking to build your best compliance robot, you know, kind of what would that look like? You know, you'd understand the law, you'd understand technology and data analytics, you'd probably understand a little bit of psychology, you know, you probably understand auditing, you probably have to understand internal controls, you know, and I could probably think of some other things too, you know, if we were building the sort of the best compliance or the best chief compliance uh, officer robot. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's, it's really, really upped people's games. And I think, you know, there's a lot of other things that I think are gonna change in the next couple of years, which are gonna accentuate those skills. I mean, we're moving, we're moving very, very quickly now. And if you can't keep up, it's, it's like quicksand. Um, you're, you're gonna, you're, it's gonna swallow you in and then it's gonna be a problem. And so, you know, I think that's a great question. And I think that, um, you know, I think compliance is still evolving, um, but I think those fundamental skill sets are here to stay. Uh, one of the things, uh, let me just pick up on that answer because I was going to ask you about the COSO 2013 internal controls framework and then an overall integrated structure of enterprise risk management as separate sort of developments. But it seems to me that uh, if we are going to, and not if, but as we move almost exponentially in speed now, it's because we had, is it because we had those developments? So we had a framework in place for nearly eight years now in terms of the COSO framework, then mm -hmm. enterprise risk management uh, integrated other risk management functions. Uh, would that be a fair assessment or do you see those as really independent of the uh, speed of evolution of compliance today? That's a great question. I think it, it, I think it pressed, it's, it pressed on, it certainly pressed some buttons with regards to compliance. And as you well know, if you read through, if you read through COSO, um, you know, there's some interesting things there. So, um, you know, the framework, um, the 2013 framework, um, you know, uh, if you go back to the 2013 framework, let me think for a second, you know, that was really, 
it was it was an enhancement and it was it was designed and um it was to help organizations implement internal control um you know in light of the many you know ever you know the changing business and operating environments i i, I think i think there, you might have been you might be onto something here because you know that again we talk about change and the, the pace of change um you know since the issuance of that original framework you know which was years before that so you know in the illustrative guide you know as i think you wrote about this coso laid out its views on how to assess the effectiveness of internal controls but it, it went on to say um you know an, an effective system of internal control again provides that reasonable assurance but it talks about the entity's objectives relating to its operations reporting and compliance. And I think that word compliance, you know, kind of stuck out to me. So, you know, there are there are there are a couple of different things here, you know, from an integrative approach perspective. So I think I, I think the framework kind of, you know, again, so, sort of pushed on compliance. But, you know, again, I I I think it did have something to do with this, but I also think it has something to do with the fact that if you look at the structure of businesses today and change, you know, you had businesses that had expanded their supply chains. We've become more of a global type of 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 a, of of an of an environment, and those risks obviously changed. So um, when you when you move to digital, and you have everything digital, and you're moving globally, you know, compliance really does become more important, and having that overall integrated structure that COSO does generally provide, I think is certainly a help. And I do think the 2013 guidance was again, you know, sort of a, a, an inkling of what was to be, you know, and that was ERM, enterprise risk management. Um, you know, because if we talk about enterprise risk management, we're talking about generally proactively um, identifying and assessing and monitoring and responding to risks and opportunities. Well. Isn't that what we really want today from a compliance organization or a compliance function? We want we want to proactively identify these things. This is all about, you know, if you look at the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and it talks about feedback, right? Uh, you know, perfect segue into the ECCP. You know, they talk about feedback and they talk about lessons learned and things of that nature, um, you know, and, and the risk landscape. So I think COSO is great, you know, the, the, you know, and what they say, but integrating ERM into an organization's daily culture, um, I think provides a bunch of different advantages, you know, it, it, and it really, at the end of the day, it's informed decision-making um, and, and coordination of risk-related activities. And it does link, you know, as I always say, I always, I always look at the strategy, you know, and the plans, and we always look at the barriers, obstacles, and hurdles in order to get there and those enterprise risks, you know, and, you know, I, I think the ERM framework that COSO also put out is really where we all should be. But it's uh, it's really tough, I think, for an organization. I think a lot of folks think that installing some of these things are rate limiting steps within their company and just, you know, not necessary. But I think they'll all come to find out pretty shortly that the regulators are taking a pretty serious stance when it comes to compliance and they're taking a pretty serious stance when it comes to fraudulent activity. And so, you know, I think anyone that's not doing this today should really take another look and, you know, again, crawl, walk and run, but, you know, try to do something from an ERM perspective. Jonathan, in 2019, we had the original formulation of the evaluation of 
corporate compliance programs. That was updated in June of 2020. And you also, in 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 the context of that, the release of that document had one of the most prescient statements, which was you said that the 2020 update brought business intelligence to compliance. I was wondering if you might be able to elaborate that on on that a little bit. Yeah, um, you know, I, having a compliance program, and again, Tom, you and I have talked about this a lot. You know, um, is it's just not enough today. You know. Um, when we talk about business, so actually backing up a little bit here, just thinking about this question, if you look at the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, they really did emphasize, you know, the risk assessment, right? You know, the effectiveness and alignment of the risk assessment. Um, they really did emphasize data access, you know, relevant data and sources of truth. And they really did emphasize using lessons learned. As a matter of fact, I think they stated that probably eight or more times, you know, in order to review your program and adapt the program to the current risk landscape. So when we talk about using business intelligence, um, you know, we're talking about continuously evaluating, you know, and, 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 and I think it's a step towards, you know, enterprise resiliency. Like I said before, we talk about making it more, you know, better and, you know, more informed decisions. You know, I think this is what it comes down to, but you organizations today have to be flexible and nimble and adapt to changes of new risks, not only to survive, but also to evolve. You know, you know, so compliance really needs to be proactive. Specifically, it needs to be dynamic and a continually adapting process. So, you know, but the one caution I would throw here is that business intelligence is way more than data analytics. It's a formal process that helps you know the senior leadership team uh, make again more informed business decisions, including enhancing their compliance program. It also accentuates, I believe, the need for compliance and internal audit to collaborate. You know, which we haven't talked about yet. We mentioned it a little bit, but you know, I, I talked about reaching across the lines and you know the silo thing. But you know, it's been my experience and understanding that internal audit, you know, can improve the 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 depth and breadth and coverage of the work you know, by using, you know, some of these data techniques effectively, you know, and working in collaboration with compliance. And I think the more, the more risk resilient companies or enterprises today are the ones where you look at that, what I call the Bermuda Triangle, where you have internal audit compliance and legal, and they're all working harmoniously together, you know, not only to identify risks, but they're also working, you know, uh, they're also sharing feedback and they're also continuously evaluating you know, their risk assessments and how that translates and how it's operationalized within the business. So, you know, um, it's it, it's really interesting. I, I, am, I am more excited today about, you know, where we're headed because I think it's, you know, I, I, I think it uses a lot of, you know, it's, it, you have to be a dynamic, like I said, I talked about being digitally athletic. You really have to be a, an athletic professional today. You can't just be a one trick pony. Um, and if, if the only thing you know is the law or the only thing you know is accounting and internal controls, I think you're going to suffer. So, you know, especially in an organization that is going to be thirsty for business intelligence. Uh, Jonathan, you were one of the first people I came across who not only talked about the need for a root cause analysis, talked about the rigor around it, but actually taught and lectured on the process of a root cause analysis. 
uh, in the first evaluation of corporate compliance programs, largely authored by Wei Chen, which came out in 2017, they emphasize the root cause analysis. Why do you? Why have you advocated for so long that a root cause analysis is absolutely essential? But more importantly, it's the rigor around your process, uh, five whys or, or whatever you might call it, and then how you use that information. Yeah. So you know again let's you know let's go back and and unpack this a little bit you know there's a there's a difference between doing an investigation and understanding what root cause is and so um you know or doing a risk assessment and understanding what root cause is so when i look at root cause it's really finding that one domino that fell that tipped off everything else and i think the reason that we need to do that is because more often than not a lot of times are people, you know, a lot of times there are recommendations that are made um, specifically related to internal controls that are treating the symptoms and not the underlying issues. And then we have this funky word that I learned how to spell called recidivism. And so that same problem keeps happening or coming back. And I think organizations, you know, now in today's regulatory environment, you know, you know, whether you're, you know, you, when, you, when you're in the public vein, you know, fines and penalties and things, they're, they're pretty significant these days. And so, but more importantly, you know, from a root cause perspective, you know, if you're doing, you know, the five whys or the, you know, or, or any of the techniques that you can use in order to do root cause, I think it helps enhance the overall control environment by making more um, laser focused recommendations. And again, treating those underlying issues um, when it comes to designing internal controls, because uh, you know, again, it's not only the definition of internal control, Tom, that we've talked about ad nauseum. It's also, you know, how do people design internal controls? So, you know, you've heard me say, you know, what's the definition of internal control to hundreds of people and hundreds of people sit there, you know, in, you know, in, you know, I sit there in silence because nobody could give me a definition of an internal control. You know, when we talk about internal controls and we talk about root cause, you know, I get sort of same and similar. And so, you know, um, you know, it's no longer can you do an investigation. You know, it's like I, I remember somebody saying to me one time, I think it was a, a, an audit committee chair, you know, get in, get on and get out, you know, when it comes to an investigation. OK, that's great. But what about all the recommendations? What about root cause? You know, even even from an internal audit perspective, not even from a, an investigative perspective. You know, are we really truly adding value to the organization by just giving sort of haphazard, you know, recommendations or enhancements to controls? The answer to that is no. And so, you know, understanding root cause, you know, act, you know, using Socratic questioning, you know, using some of the techniques, you know, so you know, such as the five Y technique, you know, understanding corporate governance, understanding culture, understanding the mechanisms on how it all comes together, understanding risk which I, again, I think, you know, a lot of people just don't understand, you know, you say the word risk sometimes, and it, it's amazing that um, it's amazing what, what you start to hear that come out of people's mouths, you know? So like, it, like I give you a great example, when we're doing root cause, when we talk about risk, we talk about external or internal risk. So, you know, and then you go down the path of an external and internal risk, you know, internal risks, we'll take that path just for an example for today's program, but you look at business relationships or you look at the business environment, you know, you look at your customers, you look at your third parties, you look at external things, you look at your geography, you look at your market and your industry, and then you keep peeling that and pushing that away, you know, and getting deeper and deeper, 
you know, and so for example, you look at your customers, customer profiles, customer interactions, you know, customers use of your product or your service. When you look at third parties, your third party profile, you know, the strength of your third party risk management program, um, you know, geography, local culture. I mean, everyone out there, hopefully you understand that in different cultures, uh, when you go, when you, when you travel across the globe, people do things differently. And that cultural, that local culture part is such a key in really understanding risk and how people react. That's that human element that I talked about before. You have to take that into consideration, you know, and then, you know, sometimes, and, and, and it could be, sometimes that could be, you know, one, one of the root causes, if not a root cause is that local culture. Maybe they didn't understand, maybe they weren't trained properly, you know, maybe things got lost in translation, but, you know, um, you know, understanding root cause, understanding you know, how this plays and understanding the value that it can bring, you know, when you're doing an investigation, when you're doing a risk assessment, when you're designing an internal control, I think it's just, it, it, it's, it's almost necessary today. And, um, you know, if you're in the compliance function, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I, I keep saying, you know, when, when you're thinking about what, where you need to go and what you need to be, you know, going forward, having a root cause program, you know, within your own house, is is really necessary so jonathan i was going to ask you where did you see the compliance function in 2025 or beyond but you've really given us several answers uh throughout this podcast and it seems to be if i can even go back and start with a digitally athletic the communication and the critical thinking but then you've overlaid some additional factors uh, maybe i could ask um it, is it fair to ask one CCO to have all these skills or would a, a different, if not better approach to be to have those skills available, whether they be internally in your corporate internal audit or have external uh, subject matter experts that you can call upon uh, when needed? Yeah, I mean, if you're blessed with all that talent, you're, you're lucky. I'm not that smart. So, you know, um, uh, you know, I think having a, having those resources available is really critical and key. You know, like you said, Tom. You know, they may not they may not reside in house, but they do. You know, it, you, I, I would make sure that you have somebody or or a few folks or a, a go to for some of these things. Um, you know, like you mentioned, I did mention some themes where I think you know this whole thing is going. But um, you know, people, process, and technology is something that we keep pounding on you know, from where, where compliance is headed, you know, obviously, you know, from our enterprise risk resilient perspective, you know, and, and partnering with the internal audit and legal is certainly something as well. So, you know, when I keep thinking about, you know, what compliance will look like in the future and, you know, what we're going to need and, um, and, and those skill sets, I think it's still evolving, like I mentioned, but, you know, um, having those, having that, having resources like they say in some of the regulatory guidance to me is not only money um the budget available but having those partnerships or relationships with the people that you can go to for to you know to deal with some of these issues and in, in order to tackle them effectively so jonathan um we are unfortunately are near the end of our time uh, for this episode but i was wondering if our listeners wanted any additional information on yourself uh, or Baker Tilly, perhaps, or any of the topics you've talked about in this podcast, where could they go? 
Well, you can, you, uh, the first place I would go is bakertilly.com. You know, I'm, I'm listed in there. You could certainly search for me. And that has many of my, you know, many of my writings and some of the things that we're doing and some of the other resources that the firm provides. Or you can go to boardandfraud.com, which is a blog that I maintain, um, and look for some information there. A lot of this, I, I believe, I, I hope, um, some of the things that we talked about today are are buried within you know, a lot of my writings over the last couple of years. But if it's something that's not there, you know, please feel to, you know, link up, link up with me on LinkedIn and, you know, I'm happy to help you any way I can. Uh, uh, you know, your mention of board and fraud actually uh, makes me want to ask a special bonus question. We, we haven't really touched upon the board of directors in this podcast, but where do you see the board needing to be in 2025 and beyond for, for really any of these topics? Yeah, I, I, you know, we talk about board and we talk about, you know, risk and oversight, you know, and I think the, you know, the Bluebell ice cream case was a real wake up from a compliance perspective that you just can't, you just can't rely on certain information. You have to actually understand and, and almost, almost touch, almost touch to see, uh, to almost touch to, to, to know that it exists and it's functioning appropriately. And you need to get that that information. So, you know, I think from a board member perspective going into the, you know, going into the future, you know, I think you're going to have to start to ask some pretty tough questions. And I think those tough questions are surrounding, you know, our audit process, you know, what kind of audit process do we have? I think it starts like with internal audit, you know, creating an internal audit plan, that's wonderful. But, you know, if you're an organization and you stick to those 10 audits that you do every single year, and you don't move off of that based on the cadence of the company, the market, or the risks that come up, I think you're left way behind. You know, there's a concept I, that gets thrown out there, which I'm not even going to mention the word, but, you know, I think you have to have an adaptable audit program, and that adapts to the risks and the and the things that are that are moving forward. I think the board needs to understand that, and they need to be flexible and understand that the risk landscape does change. It does change quickly. And, you know, you know asking senior leadership, um, you know, and understanding whether senior leadership has that adaptability is going to be critical for a board. And I think, you know, you're going to have to ask and, and see and understand, you know, what, you know, what the organization is doing in order to monitor, you know, we didn't even talk about, you know, monitoring, you know, what to monitor, you know, how the organization is monitoring these things on an ongoing basis. You know, are we using as a tool, continuous auditing or continuous monitoring and their appropriate, um, you know, the appropriate setup? You know, what type of feedback are we getting? Is are, is the information that the board is getting appropriate? You know what I mean? You have to look at, you know, your board package. What's included in your board package? Um, do you have all the information you need, um, again, in order to assess risk for the organization? Um, so I, I think it's going to, I think it has changed. I think it's going to continue to change. Um, but, you know, I think overall, if I had to give a board member one bit of advice, you know, don't, don't think you could just show up and, and phone or phone it in. You really have to study what's going on and you really have to stay ahead of the risk landscape and ask those types of questions. Um, and you really have to be um, really have to be a student of the industry and the and the and that you're in and, 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 and what's going on there. And you also have to monitor what's going on from a regulatory perspective, because I think there's a lot of great lessons learned by other people's failures. And using those in order to enhance what you're doing is not a bad thing. Um, so, you know, again, from an overall board perspective, um, that that's what that's where I would be going. 
Well, Jonathan, we are now at the end of our time, but I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with me, and I greatly no. look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. No problem. It's a, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I value the friendship, and we've been friends for a long time, and you know, you're doing a great thing here, Tom, so thanks so much for having me. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.